It's really a, my privilege to introduce uh, Charles to you. I'm going to introduce you to some of his, for lack of a better word, statistics. <laughs> and then I'm going to say a little bit more of a personal note at the end. Um, Charles was um, born in the UK, came to Christ um, from watching a Billy Graham movie, um, and went through the school system. Uh, it's too bad that Ron isn't here today. Um, what, did some farming in Zimbabwe, of all things, uh, for two years. Came back, and some of you are familiar with Cape and Ray uh, Bible schools. They're all over the world, really. Um, he was involved with them for many years as an evangelist, as a teacher, uh, as a leader of them. Uh, later, uh, represented them um, evangelistically in, I, in, in a teaching ministry, an itinerant ministry, really all around the world. Um, but 11 years ago, um, became the senior pastor of the People's Church in Toronto, which most of you would be familiar with. It's one of the largest churches in Canada. It has 4,000-plus people uh, every Sunday. Uh, I don't know. How many services do you have now on a, on a, on a weekend? Two? We have two at the moment. We've got the third in a few months. Yeah, so things are going gangbusters there. Um, he also has a TV program, a weekly TV program that is one hour called Living Truth. It's seen in Canada, United States, UK, Europe, India, Australia, New Zealand, Guyana, South Korea, and especially meaningful to me, Japan, of all places. Um, every time I talk to Charles, he tells me about another Japanese person that's come to Christ at Peoples, which is always very exciting to hear about. He has preached in over 80 countries on five continents. He's an author of numerous books. He'll be introducing a couple of his books to you. And, and he's brought some of his books as well, so they're, they're the back. Many of his books have been translated into other languages. I was on the, the website, Living Truth website, and I, I counted at least 10 languages that, that his books have been translated into. He's married to his wife, Hillary, uh, of 30, 32 years ago, I believe, uh, 1980. Um, she is also a gifted teacher and writes books as well. Uh, they have three children, Hannah, Laura, and Matthew, all adults. So, the question, of course, that all of you are wondering is, why is he here? Um, everybody that I mentioned this to, Charles, over the last couple of months, they go, what? <laughs> it uh, causes people to, to, to crank their necks. Um, that is an interesting question. Um, Charles and I kind of started a friendship, I think it was about three years ago. Um, I asked if, we could, uh, if I could meet him for lunch. I was surprised he said yes. And we've met several times for lunch since then, and we do that about once or twice a year. But uh, I'll tell you, uh, what really attracted me to Charles was over the, the, our times over the lunch hour, uh, his uh, obvious understanding of grace uh, and things of first importance. He communicated, I always felt a, a kind of a blessing of grace on my life after I had spent some time with Charles, uh, and articulated in an unusually clear uh, and uh, from a kind of, just kind of from an angle that I'm not used to hearing. And I, I thought to myself, wow, wouldn't it be wonderful if our church could experience a little bit of Charles? I thought, it's unlikely. And so I asked him if he would, would you possibly, in this busy schedule, come and, and make a, a stop at our church? And he surprised me by saying yes. So here he is. Um, so I think that that says something about the man. Um, and I think you're really, really going to be helped by his teaching today. And Charles, I think you're going to really find that you have a hungry crowd here. So thank you so much for coming. 
Well, thank you for that exaggerated introduction, Tim. <laughs> and uh, it's great to be here. I, before I came to Toronto in 2001, I'd never been part of a church that had more than 60 people in it. So my natural habitat is not the church I'm serving now. It's uh, this kind of group. So I know what I learned and, and, and the gratitude I had to people who came and opened the word of God to us. Uh, I lived in a rural area in Hereford, west of England. This is on the Welsh border. That's where I grew up. My great-grandfather was actually converted in the Welsh Revival in 1904 from a completely pagan background. And uh, through what can only be a miracle of God, he was saved in a, in a pub, actually, a bar, uh, having mocked the revival. Came home late, woke up his wife, my great-grandmother, who was in bed, and told her that she thought he was drunk, but he woke up, she thought he was drunk, and he said he'd become a Christian. And that only confirmed to her that he was drunk. Uh, but within, the, woke up the rest of the house. My grandfather's about 22, 23, and within days, the whole family had come to Christ. So I owe my spiritual uh, history to the work of God in that uh, unusual revival. 100,000 people came to Christ in 10 weeks but which today and for the last 50 years has been the hardest place probably in Europe to preach the gospel. And people have speculated as to all kinds of reasons why a place that was so fertile and so open and so impacted should have become so hardened. I think it was possibly the theological colleges which became extremely liberal in their handling of the word of God. And I think they undermined amongst the leaders the confidence in scripture and that spread on through. But there are still some things, pockets of things happening in Wales. But that's my background. I grew up in a rural area in Hereford on the, neck, on the border of South Wales. And uh, it was a little church. We had about 30 or 40. When I lived at Cape and Ray in the north of England, uh, when I wasn't away, we would go, my family did to a a local church, and we had, on a good day, 60 people there. So to come to Toronto and be part of a church, I never had a pastor because we never, these churches weren't big enough to have pastors. So I never had a pastor, and I had to become one and discover we had several thousand people to look after. But uh, that's been a, a great learning experience. And uh, I have appreciated knowing Tim. We met, I think we we're on a panel together. Uh, for pastors down in the east side, Etobicoke side of the city. And uh, that's when we first met. And uh, I too appreciate very much the times we spent together. What I'm going to do is read to you a few verses from Matthew chapter 5. Now I know you've been going through Matthew's gospel. So I had already uh, felt this was the right word to bring today. When I went onto your website and realized you'd been going through Matthew. So I didn't listen to what Tim said about Matthew 5. Uh, so I'm, I'm speaking uh, out of ignorance of what you've already heard from here. But I'm going to use the verse I'm going to read to you really as, as a launch pad. That will come back to the context. was a launch pad for the bigger picture that I think represents the heart of what Scripture is bringing to us. And many, many facets of the Christian life. But there is a heart and a hub from which everything else flows out. And I'm going to read from verse 17 of Matthew 5. 
and this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And of course, we read them a little earlier, the moral law, the Ten Commandments. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And I suggest to you, those must have been some of the most discouraging words that ever left the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you why. If Israel had a problem, it was that long ago, God had given to them the law. There are facets, different facets of that law, of course. But here he's speaking in Matthew 5 about the Ten Commandments, the moral law as opposed to the ceremonial law, the civil law, other ways in which you might understand the broader law that God had given. But... Ever since God had given the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai, you could write one word across their history, and it's the word failure. The historical books record the details of that failure. The poetic books weep and mourn about that failure. The prophetic books preach about that failure. And with this history of failure, Jesus has come on the scene preaching good news, which is what the word gospel means, of course, And I imagine that many of these folks who went up the hillside to listen to Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount said to each other on the climb up the hill, what do you think the good news is going to be? And I can imagine somebody saying, well, you know, I think the good news is going to be that God is going to soften a little bit. He's been very difficult to get on with up until now. He always seems to be so angry. Somebody else says, yeah, I I think so. Maybe God is going to be a little more understanding of us than he's been up until now. Somebody else may have said, you know, I think maybe that after today, instead of having ten commandments, we'll have only six. Maybe we're going to ditch a few. And the reason why I suggest that may be how they were thinking is because in verse 17, Jesus seems to anticipate that. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Do not get the wrong idea. I've not come to you with an apology from heaven for a law you've been unable to keep. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That is, to make them work. And I want to talk about that. And I want to talk about it under three headings regarding the law. I want to talk, first of all, about the purpose of the law. Why, when God gave the law, did he give these particular commandments? Why these ten? Why not others? Then I want to talk about the effect of the law. What does the law do for us? And then, in the light of that, my third point will be to talk about the fulfillment of the law. What did Jesus mean? I've not come to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. Now, just listen for the first half, when we have to do a little bit of donkey work and and just uh, uh, understand the whole idea behind the giving of the law and if you get hold of that when it gets to the exciting part which is the second part uh, you'll know why it's exciting if you nap in the first half you won't know why it's exciting in the second half 
because we've got to understand the groundwork first. So let me ask the question, why when God gave the law, the Ten Commandments, did he give a set of requirements that are so high, so demanding, so unreasonable, humanly speaking, that nobody's been able to keep them? Doesn't seem very fair, does it? Without knowing anything else about you, as a complete stranger, I'd be quite prepared to look you in the eye and say, you have broken the law of God. And you wouldn't get hot under the collar. You wouldn't get angry with me. You wouldn't even blink, probably. You'd just look me back in the eye and say, and so have you. (laughs) Because you know and I know that no man, no woman, no boy, no girl has ever kept the law of God. That raises an important question. Why did God give us a law we couldn't keep? If you're involved in making rules, and every family has its rules of some kind or other, a basic principle in making rules is any rule people can't keep is a bad rule. If you make rules people can't keep, you're asking for trouble. And you've caused it by giving them something impossible. And yet God has given to us a set of rules so high, so demanding, nobody has been able to keep them. Why? What was the criteria that determined what the law should be? Did God just pick these ten commandments out of a hat, so to speak, and ten would be enough stone for Moses to carry up? Beyond that, it'd get too heavy. And so we're limited to ten, and here's one, here's one, here's one, here's one. Maybe any angel's got a few ideas about what people should do down there to keep themselves out of mischief. What do you say? Uh, don't steal. No, that's a good one. Let's put that one down. Yeah, don't steal. You know, and, and just select a few guidelines like that from the angels. No, there's a very profound reason why the law is what it is. And to discover that, I want to compare with you two verses in Scripture which describe what all sin is. Only two verses describe what all sin involves. One is in 1 John 3 and verse 4. And before I read it to you, let me just remind you of something I'm sure you know, that the word sin in its English origin, literally means to miss the mark. It was used in archery. If you took an arrow and you fired it at a target and you missed the target, it was called sin. That's where the word comes from. If you missed by half an inch, it was called sin. If you missed by half a foot, it was called sin. If you missed by half a yard, it was called sin. If you missed by half a mile, it was called sin. If you shot in the opposite direction, it was called sin. Because sin is not a measurement of how bad we are. Sin is a measurement of how good we are not, if you understand the difference. If you miss a bus by a minute, you've missed it. Miss it by 10 minutes, you've missed it. Miss it by 20 minutes, you've missed it. Miss it by an hour, you've missed it. You don't congratulate yourself when you miss a bus by a minute. You say, that's fantastic, I only missed it by a minute today. It's even more frustrating, actually. Do you know, there is a sense in which God is not interested in how bad people are. He is interested in how good we are not. If you appreciate the difference. Now, if sin is to miss the mark, sin is a relative word. We do not understand what sin is unless we know what the mark is that we have missed. Now, in 1 John 3 and verse 4, John writes there, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. So John says there, every time anybody sins, no matter what the nature of the sin is, What you've done is you have broken the law. If my left hand here represents the requirements of the law, every sin involves coming short of those requirements. It involves breaking the law. Now, that doesn't answer the question, why is the law 
as it is, we might say, well, if that's the case, why didn't God make it a little lower to encourage us a little bit more? But keep that verse in mind and compare it with the only other verse that describes what all sin is, which is in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. And some of you know this verse by heart. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. My right hand represents the glory of God. Then to sin, says Paul, is to come short of the glory of God, whatever that is. We'll come back to that in a moment. Now put those two verses together. John says to sin is to break the law. In fact, all sin is breaking the law. Sin is lawlessness. And Paul says the sin is to come short of the glory of God. For Paul, the glory of God represents the target we've missed. For John, the law of God represents the target that we have missed. If you put those two verses together, that tells us that the law of God and the glory of God equal the same thing. Therefore, to answer the question, why is the law of God what it is, we have to ask, what is the glory of God? Now, the word glory occurs with slight variation of meaning, depending on its context in Scripture. But essentially, the glory of God is the character of God, the moral character of God. In uh, W.E. Vine's expository dictionary of New Testament words, and if I quote it, you'll believe me. <laughs> He says, the glory of God is the character of God, what he essentially is and does. In John's gospel, John wrote in John 1.14 about the Lord Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us and we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Now when John says we saw his glory, what did he see? Did he see a bright light suspended above Jesus' head, about six inches above his head in the shape of a lifesaver, as artists sometimes portray? No, we know he's not saying that. He is saying we saw in Jesus Christ exactly what God was like. We saw in Jesus Christ the moral character of God. So what he was saying was this. Those of us who were kids in Nazareth, who grew up with Jesus, who played on the street with him, who kicked the ball up and down the road and went hiding in the hills with him, In the way he acted, the way he treated his friends, the way he talked to his mother, we saw what God was like. When he began to work in his father's carpenter shop, the way he went about his business, the way he paid his bills on time, the way he invoiced accurately for the work he'd done, the way he got up early in the morning to put some of his roof back on that had blown off in a gale the night before. We saw what God was like. When he began his public ministry, the way he would... Cross the road to sit with a dirty woman everybody else was embarrassed to be seen with. We saw what God was like. When lepers came ringing their bell, did anybody come close? Had this dreaded contagious disease of leprosy. Jesus would cross the road. Do you ever notice Jesus always touched lepers? Nobody touched lepers. But Jesus always did. He's dealing with lepers. We saw what God was like. When the disciples tried to protect him and keep the kids away, and Jesus said, no, let them come. And they climbed all over him and they loved him and he loved them. We saw what God was like. Because the glory of God is the moral character of God. Now, if that was true of Jesus as it was, it wasn't intended only to be true of Jesus. It was actually intended to be true of every human being. For in the beginning, God said, let us make man in our image. People debate and discuss the nature of that image. But I think it's not difficult Uh, to determine what that is. Simply by a process of of, uh, elimination. There's certain things true of God that are 
Clearly not true of human beings. God is omnipotent. We're not. God can do everything. God is omnipresent, all places, all times. We're not. We're in one place at a time. God is omniscient. He knows everything. We don't. So an advert recently, at least I was told about it, that said all 38 volumes of Encyclopedia Britannica for sale. Reason for sale, husband knows everything. (laughs) But actually he doesn't. We don't. God knows everything. We don't. God is immutable. That means he doesn't change. We do. Look in the mirror once in a while. (laughs) We get older. God is eternal, has no beginning and has no end. We have a beginning. Those are attributes that are clearly not true of human beings. But they're attributes of God that are to be true of human beings. And they are his moral attributes. God is love. We're intended to be loving. God is just. We're intended to be just. God is merciful. We're intended to be merciful. God is kind and good. These things were intended to be true of human beings. When God made Adam and Eve in his image, if you and I were a fly on the wall in the Garden of Eden, unless flies came after the forwards, they probably did. And we saw the way Adam treated Eve, we would have seen what God was like. He would have been kind and gentle. We saw the way Eve treated Adam, we would have seen what God was like. They were physical, visible expressions of God's character. We saw the way they handled the animals in the garden, the way they, you know, patted the dog and stroked the cat and fed the goldfish. You would have seen what God was like. Because to be in his image is to be an expression of his character, his moral character. But what happened was that they sinned and came short of the glory of God. They no longer show what God was like. And so if the law of God is equal to the glory of God, the reason why God gave the law was to reveal what he is like so that human beings might understand what they are supposed to be like having been made in his image. So when he said you shall not steal, it's not because stealing isn't nice, though it isn't, but that isn't the reason. There's a much more profound reason. It's because God is not a thief. And you made to be in his image, so do not steal. When he said you shall not bear false witness, it's because God never tells lies. A man was made to be in his image, so don't tell lies. When he said you shall not covet, it's because God is totally satisfied in himself. And you were made to be in his image, so do not covet. Don't be greedy, be satisfied. When he said you shall not commit adultery, it's because God is totally faithful. A man was made to be in his image, so don't ever commit adultery. When he said you shall not murder, it's because God does not murder. He has the power of life and death. He doesn't murder an arbitrary, vengeful killing. Even when he said, children, honor your parents, it's because in the Trinity, the Son says, I always do those things that please the Father. And you're made to be in God's image, so children, honor your parents. When he said, six days shall you labor, on the seventh day do no work, in the law, as we read it this afternoon, it tells us why he said that. Because God rested on the seventh day. Why did God rest on the seventh day? Was it because he was tired? No. After six days of hard creating, he did a day off? No, God rested, not because he was tired, but because he was finished. We rest in the finished sufficiency of God. And the law was given not as an arbitrary set of rules. The law was given to reveal what God is like, almost as an autobiographical statement by God about himself, so that we might understand what we are supposed to be like, having been created 
to be a visible, physical expression of his nature, created in his image. Hence, when Jesus finished in Matthew 5, talking about the law, he said, be perfect, therefore, even as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, I can imagine what kind of response that brought to the crowd as they were listening to him preach some on the mount, you know. Finishing this way, be perfect, your heavenly father is perfect. You think they said to each other, wow, that was a good message, wasn't it? I think I'll buy the tape. (laughs) No, it tells us how they responded. They were amazed at his teaching. Why were they amazed? Because it was so good? No, because it was so unrealistic, so impossible. But the purpose of the law is to reveal the nature of God. And uh, the, the character of God, should I say. And when God gave the law, and when Jesus finished his summary of the law by saying, be perfect, your heavenly father is perfect. He was saying nothing new. He was saying what God had said in the Garden of Eden. Let's make man in our image. So that's the first point, and, and that's the crucial point from which everything else, if we don't get that, the rest won't make sense. But if we do get that, the rest will make sense. Because if that's the purpose of the law, to reveal the character of God, my second point I want to talk about is the effect of the law And the effect of the law is to reveal the failure of humanity. And that became very evident very quickly. When Moses came down the mountain, the first command said, you'll have no other gods before me. For the simple reason, there is no other god. Second command, you'll not make for yourself any graven image and bow down and worship it. When Moses got down the mountain, having been absent for six weeks, he discovered in his absence, the Israelites had pulled their gold, melted it down, built a golden calf, having some kind of orgy around this golden calf. When Moses saw the first command, no other gods, second command, no graven image, and here they are worshiping in the golden calf, Moses was shocked, you remember, and he took the tablets of stone and he smashed them on the ground and had to go back to the mountain and get some more. <laughs> Moses was shocked. God was not Because God did not learn something new about human beings. Human beings learned something new about themselves. They discovered, I cannot be what I'm supposed to be. And that, of course, is the intended effect of the law. Paul wrote in Romans 7, verse 7, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. In other words, I could be up to my neck in sin with a totally clear conscience, enjoying every bit of it. And there is pleasure in sin. There's no joy in sin, but there's pleasure in sin. I put my neck in it until the law came. And when the law came, the effect of the law was to expose that I was a sinner. I remember when I was still living in England, I went down to Australia to speak at a conference just after Christmas. And I arrived in Sydney from a cold, wet, miserable England to a beautiful hot Australian summer. They're all upside down down there, you see, in every way. Uh, they get their weather, their, their seasons all mixed up, and they, they, they have summer in the middle of winter. <laughs> Our winter, their summer. And I was staying about 60 miles outside of Sydney, and I arrived on a Saturday, exhausted after that long journey and the time change. I went to bed, had a really good sleep. Next morning, they'd given me a car, and I was driving up to Sydney where I was going to preach on the Sunday morning in a church before the conference that I was there to speak at began either on the Monday or the Sunday night. Forgotten. And as I was driving up to Sydney, 
along this uh, road with a beautiful blue sky and the hot sunshine, enjoying the benefit of a good sleep and really feeling comfortable. I was coming out of a little town called Mittagong and just with a totally clear conscience driving along the road when suddenly a man stepped into the road in front of me, held up his hand, it was a policeman. I stopped, he came round to my side of the car. He said, how fast were you traveling? I said, to be honest, I don't know. He said, well, t- take a guess. And I said, well, I don't know how to guess in kilometers, I don't know how to guess in miles, I live in England. He said, all right, well, guess in miles and we'll convert it. So I guessed about 80 kilometers or something like that. And uh, he said, what is the speed limit on this road? I said, I- I'm sorry, I don't know. I just arrived from England yesterday and I actually don't know. He said, well, we put signs up in Australia and you passed one. What did it say? I said, I don't know. I didn't notice the sign. He said, may I see your driver's license? I said, I don't have it with me. He said, did you know that's an offense in Australia? I said, well, no, it's not an offense in England. You don't have to. He said, we're not in England. We're in Australia. Get out of the car. I got out of the car. I thought he was going to frisk me. But uh, he did find me on the spot. But my point is, a few minutes before, I was driving along with a totally clear conscience, thinking about the message I was going to preach on holiness when I arrived at the church. (laughs) And suddenly I'm standing by my car, feeling like a common criminal, being fined $120, I think it was, which I didn't have either. (laughs) Which is another problem. (laughs) You see, the law doesn't make you a sinner any more than the police made me a lawbreaker. He simply exposed me. Through the law, Paul said in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, we become conscious of sin. And one of the things God has to do, and sometimes it is after we have actually come to Christ, one of the things he has to do is to teach us our utter inability to be the people that we're supposed to be. We can't be it. Now, later in Matthew 5, Jesus rubbed this in. I won't read these verses, but I'll quote them to you, and you know they're there. He said, have you heard it said you must not kill? They probably said, yes, that's a good law. We've heard that one. We like that one. I sent you, said Jesus, if you're angry with your brother, even though you'd never dare put a knife into his back, you'd never put a bullet between his eyes, you are already guilty of murder. They probably said to each other, what in the world is he talking about? Have you heard it said you must not commit adultery? I sent you, said Jesus, if you look at a woman and you lust after her, even though you don't know her address, even though you'd never have the courage to go knock on her door, you are already guilty of adultery. What? You heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Sounds reasonable. That's your dentist. I sent you, said Jesus, somebody hits you in the face, don't hit them back, turn the other cheek. They take you one mark, go two. If they take your coat, give you a cloak as well. If you heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I said, you love your enemy. Pray for those who despitefully use you. And I can imagine the beads of perspiration standing up in the foreheads of these people as they turn to each other and say, I thought this was going to be good news. This isn't good news. This is terrible news. It was bad enough before we couldn't do these things. Now we can't even think about them. <laughs> what was Jesus doing? What he was doing for them, what he must do for you and for me, which is to expose to us our utter inability to be the people we're supposed to be. That by ourselves, we cannot do it. And sometimes we take a long time to learn that. But why does he expose our failure? It's never to humiliate us. It's never to embarrass us. It's never that he might rub our nose in our own dirt. It's always 
we might come to him to be cleaned up and changed. But we'll never know that until we realize the utter bankruptcy of our own condition and our own hearts. That's why the good news must begin with a recognition of bad news. A lady came to me this morning when I say, lady, mid-twenties, the end of our second service this morning. And she said, I feel so guilty. And I said, why? And she began to weep. And she began to talk about some things in her life. And then she said, why do I feel so guilty? And I said, well, pardon me saying this, but because you are guilty. <laughs> what she wanted from me was to say, oh, no, it's okay. It's okay. I said, no, actually, you're guilty from the things you told me. But it's a very wonderful thing that you know that. And it's a very wonderful thing that you feel that. Because guilt is not some negative, destructive feeling. It can, of course, be. It can be false guilt. But it's a wonderfully liberating feeling because what do you do when you're guilty? I said to her, you must come to Jesus and to the cross where you're forgiven. You know, don't, when you read Romans, don't start in chapter 4. Chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8. These are the great chapters. Start in chapter 1. It's not very pleasant reading. Chapter 2 is even worse. Chapter 3, you're, you're, you're almost suffocating in it. But it's the same reason why a medical doctor, and if there's one here this morning, forgive me, this afternoon, forgive me saying this, but it's one reason why medical doctors always seem to be such negative people. You ever notice that? They always want to know what's wrong with you. <laughs> why? They got a chip on their shoulder? <laughs> No, because they can't do anything until they know what's wrong with you. If you try to avoid that and go into your doctor's surgery and say, good morning, doctor, could you please give me some medicine? He'd probably say, no, I can't give you some medicine. Yes, you can. Give me that strawberry-flavored stuff I had last time. It was nice. I enjoyed it. Could you give me some more? I can't just give you some strawberry-flavored medicine. What's wrong with you? And you think, oh, boy, here we go again. This guy is so negative. And he probably will ask you some very direct questions, maybe some very embarrassing questions, you know. Do you get up in the night? Yeah. How many times? That's 64. What color is it? It's blue. Boy, you're sick. Tell me if this hurts. Ah, yeah, that hurts. What about this side? Ah, yeah, that hurts too. Good. What do you mean good? Well, I got some good news and bad news. Here's the bad news. You're sick. You got myxomatosis. Here's the good news. It's a bottle of pink medicine. <laughs> But no doctor can prescribe a remedy if he's made a diagnosis. Sometimes you want the remedy without the diagnosis. Diagnosis is in me, that is in my flesh, that dwells how much? No good thing. The Living Bible paraphrases that. I know that I'm rotten through and through. It's only when we know how desperate is our need that we begin to look to Christ. Not just for forgiveness of our guilt. That's one thing. But where do I find my righteousness, my holiness, my ability to go out into a dirty world and live a clean life. 
Well, that leads me to the third point, which is the exciting bit. I've not come to abolish the law, said Jesus. I've not come from heaven with an apology for law you've been unable to keep. I've come not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. What does he mean? Does he mean to fulfill it vicariously? That is, as an example. No, that wouldn't help. If Jesus simply said, look, I've come to demonstrate how the law could be lived, we'd say, well, that's fine, but that doesn't help me because the more I try to copy you, the more impossible it seems to me. No, how is the law going to be fulfilled experientially in our lives? Or to change the language without changing the meaning, how is the glory of God going to be restored? Because the law of God and the glory of God equal the same thing, remember? Let me give you three verses from Scripture, three different parts of Scripture, and then I'm going to link the, put them together, and uh, I hope this will encourage you. The first of the three verses in Colossians chapter 3, verse 27, well, 25, actually, let me read from, where Paul says, I have become its servant, that is a servant of the church, that's the context, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. Let me pause there a moment. He says, I'm presenting to you the word of God in its fullness. Up until now, there's been something missing. Up until now, there's been what he calls a mystery that's been hidden for ages and generations. So when a prophet has prophesied, he's gone back home, sat down, thought to himself, well, that's all very well, but something's missing here. When Moses came down the mountain, he went back to his tent, sat down, scratched his head and said, something's missing here. There's a mystery. This is not enough. Now at last, says Paul, we have the full revelation, the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that's been hidden until now. Verse 27, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of what? Glory. And by the way, that does not mean heaven. In evangelical slang, glory has come to mean heaven. People die and go to glory. That's the language we use. Heaven is glorious. That is absolutely true. But glory is what we've come short of. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Glory is what John said of Jesus. The word became flesh and lived for a while among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the only son of the father. We have seen in him what God is like. Now says Paul, this has been the missing ingredient. Christ in you. Not alongside you. Not holding your hand. Not as your example to copy. But Christ living in you, his life in you, is your hope of hitting the target that you've come short of. Now, keep that in mind. The two other verses, and we're telling them together. In Jeremiah 31 and verse 33, God is speaking about the new covenant that he's going to bring. And in verse 33, Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, notice that, in their minds, and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. The new covenant is not going to involve rewriting the law in any way at all. It's going to involve relocating the law. And so now it's been on tablets of stone. The new covenant will write it in your minds, in your hearts. It will internalize it. 
I'll be your God. That's why. And you'll be my people. Let me read you the third verse and I'll tie these together. Ezekiel 36 and verse 27, which is God speaking to Ezekiel about the new covenant. And he says there, I will put my spirit in you. That is what happened at Pentecost. As you may know, in John 14, verse 17, Jesus said to his disciples about the Holy Spirit, he is with you and will be in you. That's the difference Pentecost would make. Now, looking ahead to that, I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So the new covenant will be putting my spirit in you. The result will be you'll follow my decrees, you'll keep my laws. Now, let me tie those three together. Christ in you is your hope of hitting the target, your hope of glory. I'll put my law in your mind, in your heart. I'll be your God. I'll put my spirit in you and I'll move you to follow my decrees and keep my laws. And what that means is this. I'll make a statement, then I'll illustrate it. The statement is, it means that what was a command under the old covenant is going to become a promise under the new covenant. What are commands, commandments under the old covenant will become promises under the new covenant. Let me illustrate this with a true story of a man who was converted to Christ in a prison in England. He was in prison for stealing. He was a thief. And somebody had come to the prison every Sunday afternoon and had met with prisoners, shared the gospel with them. And this is one of the men that he got to know and befriended. In the course of time, this man became a believer, was born again. When he left prison, one of the first things he wanted to do was to visit the church. He didn't know which church to go to, so he picked one at random, went in, sat down at the back, and there at the front of the church were the Ten Commandments, five down one side, five down the other. He thought to himself, that is the last thing I want to see. I know myself, my past. The last thing I want to do is to sit in and read those commandments. But as the service went on, he did so. Maybe the service went a bit long or got a bit tedious, but he began to read them. But as he read them, he realized he was reading them very differently. Previously, when he read them, they said things like this, you shall not steal. It was a command. But this morning when he read it, it said, you shall not steal. It was a promise. If I can put words into his mouth, he didn't say this, but if I put words into his mouth, he could have said, thank you, Lord. Why? Because Christ in you, living his life in you, is your hope of hitting the target, your hope of glory. It used to say, you shall not bear false witness. It was a command. But this morning it said, you shall not bear false witness. It was a promise. He might have said, thank you, Lord. Why? Because I put my law in your heart, in your mind. I'm your God. He used to say, you shall not commit adultery. It was a command. But this morning it said, you shall not commit adultery. It was a promise. He could have said, thank you, Lord. Why? Because I put my spirit in you. And I'll move you to follow my degrees and keep my law. And the very things that had only ever been commandments that condemned had become promises that liberated. Isn't that fantastic? That's the gospel. The gospel is not primarily getting people out of hell into heaven. It's getting God out of heaven into people. To restore to them the quality of life for which he created human beings. Which is to be a visible physical expression of his character. And it's impossible to us. So what happened in the Garden of Eden when they sinned? 
They became, in the words of Paul, separated from the life of God. The day you eat, that day you will die. They ate, what happened that day? Did, they find cor- did God find corpses under the tree that day? No, physically they lived for many years. But that day, spiritually, they died. And in Adam, all died. We're all born spiritually dead. The consequence of spiritual life and the evidence of spiritual life is that the presence and character of God is restored into our lives into our experience. And what was a command externally that we could not keep becomes a promise internally that God himself brings to bear. That's why in Romans 8, let me read you Romans 8 and verse 3 and 4. Um, Paul writes there, for what the law was powerless to do and it was weakened by the sinful nature... The flesh, meaning what the law demanded, the human nature could not respond to or correspond to. What the law was passed to and it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. That is, as a substitute, he offered himself as an acceptable substitute to God on our behalf, which is what a sin offering was about. And so he condemned sin in sinful man, listen to this, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. It's what the law couldn't do. It could demand, but could not produce. God has done by giving us his son, first to deal with our guilt as a sin offering, and then by his indwelling Holy Spirit, that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us if we live according to the Spirit. So when the law says you shall not steal, you don't. The law says you shall not commit adultery, you don't. Why not? Because you're a little stronger than you used to be? No, because the Spirit of Jesus Christ lives in you now, and Jesus Christ doesn't steal, and Jesus Christ doesn't lie, and Jesus Christ never commits adultery. And he is your life now. And he lives within you. And when we grasp this, we have a new Bible. (laughs) Because we find the Bible is full of promises. There may be somebody here this afternoon with a problem with stealing. I don't know. But maybe you do. I got a promise for you. It's in the book of Exodus. It used to be written as a law on tablets of stone. Now it's written by the Spirit in your heart. It says you will not steal. You live in dependence upon the Holy Spirit of God within you. And you won't steal. Somebody here who's greedy is a promise. It used to be a command written on tablets of stone. Now it's a promise written by the Spirit in your heart. You will not covet. You'll be satisfied. You'll say with David, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I don't covet. Anybody here coping with sexual temptations you can hardly deal with? Well, here's a promise for you. used to be a commandment written on tablets of stone. Now it's a promise written by the Spirit in your heart. You shall not commit adultery. You won't. If the Spirit of God is ruling in your life. Maybe some of us have things that get too important and we get our priorities all mixed up. Well, here's a promise. It used to be a command written on tablets of stone. In Exodus chapter 20, it says, you will have no other gods before me. As Jesus explained later in the Sermon on the Mount, you seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, 
You'll hardly care less about anything else. It'll all be added to you. Don't worry about this, that, or the other, he says, because with no other gods before me, you'll be at peace. And the commands that so intimidate us, we can respond and say, thank you, thank you. They're promises. And as Paul said to the Corinthians, all the promises of God have their yes in Christ, which means he is the one who fulfills them in us. And the amen is from us, he says, which means we just say, so be it. Amen. Thank you. It's not what I'm doing for Jesus. It's what Jesus does in us and through us. That doesn't mean we go into some passive mode and say, well, it's not I, it's just Christ, so just go ahead. No. There is discipline of the body. We haven't time to look at it in the rest of that Matthew 5. You're angry with your brother. He doesn't say just, just thank God you can love him instead. No, he says, if you're going to offer your gift at the altar, stop what you're doing. Leave the gift. Go and be reconciled. That's tough sometimes. He said, you've heard it said, you must knock my daughter. I said, if you lust that woman, you're guilty. And then he said this, if your eye leads you to sin, gouge that, your hand leads you to sin, cut it off. Let's be utterly frank. That's the context when he says that. Sight and touch are agents and sexual arousal. He says, if you've got a problem, deal with your eye. Don't look where you must not look. Take out your eye, not literally. We know that. Cut off your hand. Bring your body under control. That's discipline of the body. That is necessary. As in Romans 8, when he says about those who live according to the spirit, uh, the righteous crowns of the law, rather, are fully met in those who live according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. He then says, who are the people who live according to the spirit? They have their mind set on what the spirit desires. Who are those who live according to the flesh? They have their mind set on the flesh. In other words, you've got to bring your mind to that point where you... Set it on the things of God, which means you spend time in the word of God. It's not just a a passive sitting back. Well, it's all of God and not of me. So I just sit back and say, well, God, just thank you for making me holy. No, you've got to bring your body under discipline. That's not impossible. It may seem tough at the start. We've got to bring our minds on the things that are true. And we haven't time to talk about all those practical outworkings. This is the principle I want you to get This afternoon, that's all we really have time for to speak about well, that it is the spirit of Jesus Christ in us who lives the life of Jesus Christ in us. And in living that life in us, he's our hope of hitting the target, our hope of glory. Now, does this mean that we can be perfect? You might say, well, the logic of what you're saying sounds so it might be, but the answer is no. Scripture never offers us perfection in this life. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, and this is the last verse I'll read, I think. Uh, I may read one more, but this is the last one I put in my notes, at least. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, uh, Paul is contrasting the Old and New Covenant in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So much of what I've said this afternoon could be said from this chapter as well. But he says in verse 17, the Lord is the spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. 
Now notice the tense of that. He doesn't say in the past tense, with unveiled faces, that's nothing between us and the Lord Jesus Christ. We reflect, we reflect his glory and we have been transformed into his likeness. Nor is it in the future tense, we will be transformed into his likeness. But in the present continuous tense, that with unveiled faces we reflect the Lord's glory and we are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. This is a process, ever-increasing glory. And this, of course, is the nature of spiritual growth. The nature of spiritual growth is not that I know more of the Bible this year than last year. That's important, but the Pharisees were good at that too. It's not that we go to more meetings this year than last year. That may be valuable. Or engage in more service this year than last year. That may be valuable. But the measure of spiritual growth is there's more evidence of the character of Jesus Christ in me this year than there used to be in the past. Which in practical terms, the way I as a husband treat my wife should more quickly remind her of Jesus than it used to. Whereas parents, we handle our kids, gives them the freedom to go out into a confused, dirty world. But to come back home, look into the face of mum and dad and say, that's what's real. They see it. Where we spend our money, the way we drive our cars, where we talk to the neighbors next door. Perhaps more tellingly, the way we talk about the neighbors when they're not listening, we'll begin to show what God is like. From one degree of glory to another, until one day we will be what the Bible calls glorified. To be glorified is fully restored. To be fully restored into the image in which we were first created. And that is the end goal of the gospel. Because as Paul wrote in Romans 8.29, those God foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Saved by the skin of their teeth? No. Predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the goal for which he saved you. That's the process that we can grieve him in that process. We can grieve the spirit. We can quench the spirit. We're warned about those things. We can live in the, by the flesh Our mind set on the things of the flesh, the old nature, rather than live by the spirit. Hence the challenge, live by the spirit and not by the flesh. But as we live by the spirit in dependence upon him and obedience to him in ways that you and I will never see in ourselves. God will be forming the character of Jesus Christ in us. We'll never see it in ourselves because every time you look inside yourself, you see an old nature alive and well. I have no time for spiritual introspection. If I try to look into a spiritual mirror, am I being Christ-like today? Oh boy, look at this. I'm, I'm really Christ-like today. I tell you, when you look inside yourself, if you're like me, you see an old nature alive and well fighting against the spirit. And it discourages you and you wake up in the morning and you feel discouraged by that battle. But it's other people who see Christ. There's a man... I knew well, his name was Alan Redpath. His name may or may not mean anything to some of you. See Tim nodding, you knew his name. He was pastor, he'd been dead 20 years now, been in heaven for 20 years, should I say. And um, he came across North America to pastor Moody Church in Chicago for a few years, 10 years I think it was. He went back to Britain. He was used by God in many wonderful ways. And I was a colleague of his just for a few years before he died. He went to live at Cape and Ray, where I went and joined the staff. 
And not long before he died in his early 80s, he had a couple of strokes in quick succession. He was in hospital, and my wife and I went to visit him in hospital. And he was in a wheelchair by the side of his bed. He used to be quite a big man. He used to play rugby, not rugby as rugby as what you first call football without the defense mechanisms. You just bare skin and muscle. <laughs> and broken bones <laughs> somewhere in your career. <laughs> and um, used to play for one of the big teams in Britain. But in his stroke, his taste buds had died, so he had no taste, and so everything was like eating cardboard. <laughs> so took away his appetite. And as he sat in the wheelchair by his bed, he said to us, I've never known such spiritual warfare as I feel sitting in this wheelchair. He said, there are temptations I thought I'd never face again. There are victories I thought I had experienced 20, 30, 40 years ago. But the temptations are back. Things I thought that I've done with that for 50 years, and they're back. He said, I didn't know that my mind was so dirty. And I tell you, I felt a little embarrassed. I was there with my wife. I felt a little embarrassed. I said something silly like, well, you've given the devil a hard time for many years. Now you're weak. Maybe he's trying to put the boot in. But that probably didn't help him very much. The end of our time, we prayed together. His voice had been frail. As he began to pray, his voice became strong. And, and he prayed as a man who knew God because he did know God. It was wonderful to hear him pray. When we finished, we said goodbye. It was the last time I saw him. He died just a short while later. Went out with my wife, Hillary. Went out in the corridor. Left his room. And a nurse was coming to attend to him. And I said, "Uh, you look after him, won't you? And she said, oh, yes. We look after everybody here. I said, I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do it very well. But he's a very special man. And she was, we were walking, she was still walking as we were saying this. And she stopped, she said, you're right, he is special, isn't he? I said, oh, we think so. He said, but so do we. We nurses love working with Alan Redpath. She said, what's special about him? I said, well, you know he's a Christian, don't you? She said, uh, oh yeah, we have lots of Christians here. That's not it. So I said, well, what do you think is special? She said, well, we were talking in the staff room the other day. And somebody was saying that they'd just been working with our Red Path. They love working with our Red Path. And we all said, yeah, we all love it when we spend time with him. And one of the nurses said, whenever I spend time with Alan Red Path, I always come away feeling clean. And she said, when this nurse said that, we all said, that's it. There's something beautifully clean about him. As Hilary and I went back to our car, we thought, isn't that interesting? Alan said, I've never known such warfare as I'm experiencing in this chair, in this weakness. Temptations I thought had gone are back. Didn't know my mind was so dirty. But the nurse said, why is he so clean? You and I will never have the privilege of looking into our own eyes and saying, I can see Christ. You'll see the old nature. It's other people who will see Christ. And you'll be embarrassed by that because you, you know it's not true because you know what you're battling with. But Jesus said, let your light shine before men and they'll see your good works and do what? 
but praise your Father who's in heaven. Not that seek your good works and make a video about your good works or write a book about your good works or pat you on the back for your good works. They'll see your good works and their mind will go somewhere else. It'll go to him. Now praise your Father. Why? Because he is the source of your goodness. And the genuine, authentic Christian life is a life that when you spend time in the company of that person, you end up thinking about Jesus and about God. I have friends like that. Whenever I spend time with them, you always end up talking about Christ. Because their lives are such that you see their good works and they point you to the Father. There are many, many dimensions to the Christian life. There are many dimensions to that process of sanctification whereby God makes us increasingly like his son. But the heart of the gospel is God is not simply getting us off the hook. So we get washed up on the shores of heaven. Phew, what a relief. But he is saving us in order to put the life of his son back into our experience. That by the spirit of God living the life of Jesus Christ in us, he is the source of being restored to glory and our lives being fruitful and effective. And that's the Christian life. All the commands of the old covenant, which could only be given on tablets of stone, become the promises of the new covenant that liberate us. And you can go out of here this afternoon and know that you live in dependence on the spirit of God. You will not steal. You will not commit adultery. You will not bear false witness. You will not have other gods. You won't even be greedy. You'll be satisfied. And you'll rest. As Hebrews 4 explains, the Sabbath rest. You'll rest. Not because you're tired. Because God is enough. You'll rest in his strength and rest in his sufficiency. That's the Sabbath of Hebrews 4. Does that make sense? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for every person here this afternoon. Thank you for the appetite that brings us here, the appetite to know you more fully, more deeply, more sufficiently in our lives. Thank you for the day you made us aware of our sin, not to humiliate us or to embarrass us, but to cleanse us and to put your Holy Spirit in our hearts. If he living in us would create in us appetites that are alien to the old nature, appetites for righteousness, appetites for goodness, appetites to love, be kind, we pray, Lord Jesus, that we'll be men and women and young people who know what it is to walk in the Spirit, to live in such dependence on you. Although we will be conscious of the battle that will rage inside that old nature, that old flesh which will never be converted, but instead is to be crucified that increasingly the life of Jesus in us may be seen and be a source of blessing and benefit to others around us. 
Thank you for the truth of the gospel, for the fullness of the gospel. It doesn't just deal with symptoms, but it goes to the cause and restores the spirit of God into our experience. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.